Well, we continue this morning in our sermon series in the Gospel according to Mark. Our scripture text for today comes from Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put into prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and for the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried in to the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. God, we are grateful for your word, even passages like this today. We pray that as we examine this story of great evil and wickedness, that you would make us humble that you would lead us to repentance, and that you would strengthen our faith in you. Amen. Well, in our text today, Mark records for us, initially, Herod's reaction to Jesus. Initially, this has nothing to do with John the Baptist. Some are claiming that Jesus is Elijah. Others are saying that he was a prophet. But Herod has another theory. When Herod hears of all that Jesus was doing and saying, of his miracles and of his teaching, Herod makes the assumption that Jesus is actually the resurrected John the Baptist. And then Mark uses this opportunity to sort of rewind the clock and tell us a little bit about John's death. Remember, as we've mentioned in past weeks, Mark isn't attempting to write a historical narrative or account of every event from Jesus' 
life and ministry. He is very specifically hand-selecting individual conversations and events and miracles and accounts and weaving them together to paint this grand picture of who Jesus is and of what he came to accomplish. And so this is another example where we see that Mark isn't all that interested in chronology, but instead is focused on meaning and message as he picks his accounts to share with us. I'd also point out we did jump over some of Mark's gospel account, verses 1 through 13 of chapter 6. It's not because it's not valuable and not important. It's because my goal is to be done by Christmas and something has to be sacrificed along the way. I think just a few comments about the the people mentioned in this episode would be helpful for us. The, The Herod that Mark speaks of is not Herod the Great that we're familiar with from the story of Jesus' birth, but rather his son, Herod Antipas. Uh, Mark refers to him, maybe even sarcastically, as King Herod, but he was not a king. He was one of four rulers appointed by the Roman Empire to oversee the territory in and surrounding ancient Israel. He was, his official title was Tetrarch. The story of Herod Antipas and his family and his life is a uh, a sordid one. He was married, as we see in the text, to a woman named Herodias, and it's generally believed and fairly commonly understood that she was actually his niece, and she had previously been married to one of his brothers, his brother Philip. Following the events of our text today, Herodias's brother Agrippa would become king of some nearby territory, And she was so jealous, uh, we don't know this from scripture, but from some historians, contemporary historians, she became so jealous of her brother's success that she decided to send her, her husband to Rome to beg or demand that the emperor Caligula also give Antipas the title of king instead of Tetrarch. Caligula didn't agree and didn't particularly care for Antipas. He feared that Antipas was... Uh, working against him, and so he actually sent him into exile. Instead of granting him the title king, he sent him into exile in Spain to live out the remainder of his life. So that kind of backfired. So he went from Tetrarch of Galilee to a political exile in Spain. Herod Antipas was known to participate in religious, especially Jewish practices, such as celebrating the Passover Uh, But most of his subjects, most of the people that he uh, ruled over weren't fooled by his religiosity. It it was commonly assumed that he was pandering. In fact, in Luke chapter 13, uh, Jesus himself calls Herod Antipas a fox, which was uh, an insult in the first century. Uh, Finally, I want to identify the daughter mentioned in this account. Most scholars are in agreement that this girl is a daughter from Herodias's first marriage, which would have made her uh, Herod's stepdaughter and also niece, I guess. Family trees a little intertwined too closely there. But with that context, with that introduction, let's uh, dive into the text and explore what it is that Mark is telling us. There are four words that I want to use to sort of guide our way through this account of John the baptizer's death at the hands of Herod. Four words that I think uh, capture the meaning and the message that Mark is bringing to our attention. And those four words are are boldness, intoxication, wickedness, 
and cost. So first, the word boldness. Look at verse 17. Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Why was Herodias, the wife of Herod Antipas, so angry with John? Why did she want John dead? Because John was bold enough to call even the most powerful man in the region to repentance. Herod was pandering to the Jews, sometimes pretending to be a devout Jew. And John has the audacity, the boldness, the the guts to call him out, to call him to account for his actions, to call him to repentance. You see, Herodias had left her first husband, the half-brother of Antipas, and Antipas divorced his first wife in order for them to be together. And John calls him to repentance. We don't know the context of this. We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us the circumstances of how John and Herod knew each other. He doesn't tell us when they were talking or what the circumstances of those conversations are. Herod could certainly have killed John at any moment. But John was faithful and bold in calling all people to repentance. Mark told us in chapter 1 that John's entire message... The message that summarized John's life was a message of repentance. A baptism of repentance, Mark says, for the forgiveness of sins. John doesn't change his message for the Tetrarch. He he shoots straight. He calls him out. And the crazy thing is that verse 20 tells us that Herod was puzzled, was perplexed by John. And even that he enjoyed listening to him. We get the sense that Herod knew, Herod knew that there was something different about this guy, something special about him. Herod knew that he was righteous, that he was holy. And and I think as I read this, deep down inside, Herod knew that John was right. And most of us don't have the ear of a ruler or a government official. But we do have opportunities to speak in a way that leads people toward repentance and faith. By and large, many in the church have traded boldness for gossip, for social media posts, whatever whatever it might be. Do we believe, think about this, do we believe the gospel enough to risk our reputation, to risk embarrassment, Notice the boldness of John. Second, I want you to notice uh, this word. It doesn't show up specifically in our text, but I think it summarizes it best, and that word is intoxication. Verse 21, on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and for the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath 
So he didn't just say it in passing. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. In this situation, I think the word intoxication is both literal and figurative. The the intoxicating nature of sin is so evident in this account. Herod and his esteemed guests are celebrating, they're partying, and his stepdaughter is sent in to dance for them. Think about the disgusting nature of this scene. Herodias' daughter, historians tell us, was likely no more than 12 to 14 years of age. By that point in life, she would have been married off. So we know that she was young. And she's sent out there, likely we gather from the text by her mother, to dance for the entertainment, the pleasure of her stepfather and his drunk friends. Almost every serious commentator or scholar agrees that this wasn't a, this wasn't a ballet recital. This wasn't an interpretive dance. It's much more sensual than that. If you know anything about Roman culture, if you've studied Roman history at all, this is not surprising in the least. Remember, this is the guy who is so captivated by John's preaching, so perplexed, puzzled. This is a man in whom the message of repentance was perhaps starting to gain a hold, who even wanted to protect John, who was calling him out for his sin because it was clear that John was righteous, that he was from God. How deceitful, how intoxicating is sin? To the point that he is he's so intoxicated by, by liquor or by lust, we don't really know, that, that he offers his stepdaughter anything that she wants, even up to half of his kingdom. Think about how utterly foolish this is. Giving up half of your kingdom? That's what sin does. Every day people give up on marriages in order to to chase an illusion. People abandon friendships over money, over jealousy. Others might not compromise morally, but trade healthy and worshipful balance in life for the hamster wheel of success or recreation or whatever it is that people are searching for. On all levels, sin is intoxicating. And you're not immune, and I'm not immune. The third word that I want to bring to your attention today as we work our way through the text is wickedness. We see that on display, verse 24 especially. After Herod promises up to half of his kingdom, she goes out and and meets with her mother and says, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. And at once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Can you imagine a situation as as vile? Can you imagine a, a heart as hardened as this? Using your own daughter to manipulate in a way like this. Herodias personifies wickedness in just about every way. We, we don't have her entire life story. But we see clearly the the deceiving and dangerous effect of sin in our lives. 
This is the same progression. You can see it play out, for example, in the, in the life of King David after his sin with Bathsheba. What started as one act of rebellion ended up in an intricate web of lies, ultimately a web of wickedness. There's usually, you know, I've noticed two, two reactions to a story of such hardness of heart, such wickedness of behavior. Two reactions that we usually see. One, one reaction, and I think most of us experience this when we hear these stories, is arrogance. That we become proud of our own holiness. This is often our first reaction when we hear of situations like this. It almost always shows up cloaked in some false humility, a statement like, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like that guy. We've all said those things. But on the inside, it's just pride. It's self-reliance. It's self-justification. And one thing is universally true. It, it never A reaction like that never leads us to repentance. It often prevents us from living in repentance. The other reaction that we can see from a, a situation like this is humility. Humility comes because when I hear stories like this, I realize that the wicked, the hard-hearted person suffers from the same disease that I suffer from. Our response when faced with the wickedness of our world, the wickedness that results from sin, should always be humility and never pride. The forgiven and redeemed child of God always remembers what they deserve. We always remember that we could have been one decision away from the sort of intoxication that we see in our text. Never underestimate how wicked your own heart might become given the right circumstances, given unlimited wealth, given unchecked power. Never underestimate how, how wicked your own heart might become. Just, just look at the, at the steady stream of embarrassments that we see in the scriptures. Name just about anyone who shows up in the Old Testament who had any sort of power, any sort of authority. The majority of them had moments of tremendous failure. Or look around at church leaders in the last hundred years or so in our country. How many of them, the prominent ones at least, when faced with and given the opportunity to have unchecked power and abundant wealth, have proven what's in their hearts? Really what we prove as humans over and over again is that the words of Jeremiah are true, that our hearts are deceitful, that they are desperately sick. The wickedness that we see around us, the wickedness that we see in today's Story should always drive us to humility, should always drive us to repentance and never to pride because we know that we suffer from the same disease. Boldness, intoxication, wickedness, and, and the fourth and final word that I want to explore uh, briefly today is the word cost. Look at verse 27. He immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. John, the baptizer, lost his life because of his willingness to call all people to repentance without regard for status or power. 
to fully understand this, we have to understand where Mark has placed this particular story in the order of his account. The events of this are out of order, and Mark does that intentionally. In the text that was skipped over, Jesus sent out his disciples two by two to minister in the surrounding regions. And Mark, at this point in the story, when Jesus is sending out disciples to minister, Mark includes the account of John's execution as an example of the cost of discipleship. We struggle to understand this. We have lived so much of our lives in a culture in which faith in Christ might actually give a slight social or cultural advantage to us. Where even secular culture has associated church attendance historically with a certain measure of strength of one's character. Politicians and leaders would place their church membership on their resume. But as we know, those days are largely behind us. We seem to be on a path toward a time in which your faith in Christ will actually cost you something. But if we take off our American glasses and read the scriptures as much as we can with eyes wide open, we pretty quickly realize that this should be the expectation. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells us that the world will hate us. Why? Because we aren't of the world because we don't find our identity here our citizenship is not primarily here elsewhere jesus refers to to following him as quote taking up your cross remember that's the the preferred method of execution to be a disciple jesus says is to take up your cross john experienced great cost for his faithfulness his calling. Jesus continues in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 16, when he says that if we follow him, it may not go well for us. He says you will have trouble or you will have tribulation. But then he says we can take heart because he has overcome the world. And then in the following chapters, in what has become known as Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays for his disciples, but what he prays is really telling. He says, I pray, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Don't necessarily rescue them from the trials of this world. Don't remove them from the potential suffering that is in front of them. Instead, Jesus prays two main things for them, that they would be protected from the evil one and that they would be sanctified, be purified, be made holy, be set apart. Jesus' desire for us is not that we be happy and healthy and wealthy and successful, but that we follow him. That we allow whatever might come as we follow him to sanctify us, to purify us, to lead us to trust in him more. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said that there are two gates and two roads. The wide gate and the broad road, Jesus says, lead to destruction. But the small gate, the narrow road, leads to life. Does your faith cost you anything? If your relationship with the Lord doesn't marginalize you a little bit, hasn't caused you to miss out, if your life is just like that of anyone else in the world except you show up at church, it should cause us to examine 
step back. If John, if the apostles, if so many countless brothers and sisters in Christ before us have have paid such a tremendous cost, why should I be any different? Am I following Jesus or am I following myself? Of course, this only makes any sense if we every day view ourselves as redeemed people, as people purchased with the precious blood of Christ. This only makes sense if we truly believe, as Paul says, that in our baptism we were buried with Christ, that our life is not our own, that it's unthinkable that I should live for myself when Jesus died for me. If you are in Christ, your life is not your own. We aren't free to dream the American dream. Those aren't popular words. You don't have freedom to do whatever you want. To be a disciple, Jesus uh, Jesus said it, not me. To be a disciple means that we aren't leading, we're following. And we're following with our cross in tow. Those are hard words. To our sin nature, to our human nature, those words are offensive, they're painful. To the child of God, to to those who understand what it means to be redeemed and made new, they're actually words of of glorious freedom. As we close today, I want you to notice one distinction that shows up in our text between the banquet that Herod throws and the banquet that is before us today. Verse 21 of our text says that, that Herod on his birthday gave this banquet for his high officials for the military commanders, and for the leading men of Galilee. Herod puts on a meal for the elite, for the inner circle, for the upper crust, and the qualifications are high. But the meal that is before us today, this meal of of grace, is so utterly different. One qualification for this meal is Not that you somehow make the cut and are deserving, but that you recognize that you could never deserve what's offered. This meal to which Jesus invites us is a meal for sinners, a meal for outcasts, a meal for wandering sheep who have been saved from themselves by the Good Shepherd. If you think you're noble, if you think you're deserving, this banquet isn't for you. But if you know you could never qualify, if you know you could never on your own make the list, then Jesus invites you today. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your word. We praise you for your great love for us, for saving us from our sin, for rescuing us from our wickedness and from the wrath that we deserve. Lord, we pray that you would would help us to see the danger of sin the way it can so easily intoxicate us and lead us away from you. Lord, lead us to repentance. And God, we confess that our our lives are not our own, that we belong to you, that you purchased us at tremendous cost. And so equip us to live for you each day, each moment. Lord, for those who are being called to something bigger, something deeper, something more in following you, Lord. Give them the courage to be bold, to step out, to be faithful. And Lord, help each of us to trust you each step.
living our lives boldly as if we believe that we belong to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.